0: Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, a cause marketer and activist who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. I want to start the day by acknowledging a few podcasters who have helped me on this journey thus far, through a few words of encouragement and even introducing some incredible guests. Before I recorded my first episode, I got to connect with Carolyn Keel, host of Beyond Six Seconds. She tells stories from people's lives that go beyond the first impression of Six Seconds. She introduced me to DeAndre Wilson, who you meet in Episode 5, and Rebecca Bastian, founder and CEO of Own Trail, a platform that connects women to support one another. And I found a lovely historical podcast, Armchair Historians, which is hosted by Anne-Marie Cannon. Armchair Historians invites guests on to tell their favorite histories and provides deep dives into all sorts of interesting histories. Last week, I also got the opportunity to be a guest on a couple of podcasts. One of those airs before this show does, so I'll tell you about that one. Cause Pods is a podcast that features podcasts with a cause. There, Matthew Passy invites cause-related podcasters on to the talk about their shows. Each episode is brief, around 15 to 20 minutes, and you get to learn about so very many different causes. I encourage you to check all three out, and I'll leave a link to each in show notes. Today, we're going to dive into the world of rare genetic diseases as we meet our guest, Robert Belizzi, the executive director and founder of the Corneal Dystrophy Foundation. He started this not-for-profit organization back in 1998 as a grassroots patient-to-patient online supports group called Fuchs Friends. This platform enabled patients to exchange knowledge about the genetic and practical issues they had with corneal dystrophies. It now serves patients in over 150 countries and has a current membership of approximately 3,000. Welcome, Bob.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you might have guessed from the last name that we have some connection. I married Bob's son, Matt, almost 15 years ago, and I am now the mom of two boys, his grandkids, each of whom could be impacted by this rare genetic disease. Bob, why don't you tell the story of what it was like for you to be diagnosed with Fuchs dystrophy before a patient platform like that existed, like Fuchs' friends, and how did you feel being diagnosed with this rare genetic disease?
1: Well, I'm kind of strange as far as my professional history went. I... Bridge the gap between hardware engineering and software. I did a lot of the consulting where I had to analyze people's logic diagrams to decide what to do with it. I started to notice that they were giving me ever more poor Xerox copies. At least that's what I thought. I would have to get my sons to look at the logic. Okay, so I finally got back to my optometrist and he said, Well, you have cataracts and I want you to go to this ophthalmologist, and he'll take care of the cataracts. Well, the ophthalmologist was quite upset when he took some measurements, and he said, go home, I'll call you later. I have to do some work here first. And it was really strange. Well, he called me and said, you have something, a rare disease called Fuchs corneal dystrophy, and that's like Fox in German, F-U-C-H-S. And he said, there's only one place within this area, and that's the University of California, San Francisco. And I've got you hooked up with them for an appointment. Being a geek all my life, I dug into the internet. Mind you, this was 1998, so there wasn't much there. And <laughs> yeah, there were yeah, only. No,
0: no Google. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, Google didn't exist at that point online. Yahoo was the big baby. And. There were only two places, Washington University in St. Louis and UCSF, that had a identifiable information. And since I was on a slow connection, I set up to print out everything and went to bed. The next morning, I had about 90 sheets of paper, and I started reading on it.
0: Now, I imagine uh, those 90 sheets of paper might have also looked like poorly Xeroxed pieces of paper. Is that correct? No,
1: they came out well. <laughs> I, by then I had some readers. So, you know, it told me that I was going to the right place. Okay. There was a lot of information in UCSFs considering what little was in any other place. And my first appointment, they said, yeah, you have bad cataracts. Eventually you're going to need full corneal transplants. And we don't do that right away we wait until you're really legally blind because the outcome is so bad we put it off as long as possible you're replacing your optics the majority of it with somebody else's optics that's not a good thing and they're subject to a lot of problems infection they can be destroyed easily with a small blow we said well could you do cataract surgery And they said yeah But, you know, it's kind of chancy, and we don't think that way. Well, after two years of not being able to drive after that, my wife said, let's push them off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's time for you to be able to see. I'm tired of driving.
1: So we pushed them. And they said, well, there's an 80% chance of success. We said, let's do it. And it worked out well. It was just what we needed.
0: So at the time, I mean, I know that with – diseases like this where the treatments let's say are advancing over time and part of the reason they may have even asked you to hey delay it as long as possible is the treatments invariably improve with time at the time that you had the surgery what year was it then
1: my surgery was done in 2007 and 8 and by that time what they call partial corneal transplants where they just replace the offending layer of the cornea rather than the entire cornea were somewhat along. Um, it turned out that actually by forming the online group Fuchs Friends and getting the patients together, we also started communicating with the top surgeons, the experimenters, the people who, who really cared about what they were doing and kept trying to advance the state of the art. We had documentary <laughs> evidence of the fact that we pushed this hard enough that it propagated through the community, the worldwide community faster than any other ophthalmological improvement because our members <laughs> would talk to their specialists and say he'd say you need a transplant. They say a partial transplant. He said, "Well, I'm not doing that." And they would say, "Well, we know people who are doing it. We're going to go there if you don't learn how to do it." So so you pushed from the bottom essentially. We pushed from the bottom. And that's been acknowledged.
0: I've learned a little bit about this just over the years of, of knowing you and doing my own research. The things that intrigue me most about where we have been and where we're going with the types of surgeries are doing um, really have to do with the reduction in the invasiveness of the surgeries, like back in the day in 98, what they were mostly doing was essentially stamping out that portion of your eye and putting in a new piece and stitching it all around, right? Where there was a lot of scarring, the outcomes weren't as good, rejections were high, infections were high. And then more recently, this you know little incision on the side of the cornea, scraping out the old layers, putting in the donor. And now even advances going further where it looks like they're looking at injection possibilities. One of the questions I have for you being that you've seen how far this technology has come in a relatively brief amount of time, what do you think it will be like for people in the future? Like, let's say one of my kids, your grandkids, ends up having Fuchs dystrophy. How do you think treatment will be then?
1: I go for a six monthly checkup at UCSF with the same surgeon, he's a researcher. My 15 minutes with him usually turns out to be a conference between he, Monica, my wife, and myself for an hour to an hour and a half, okay? And the goal of the surgeons is to put themselves out of the business. The natural progression for the particular corneal dystrophy I have, if I had normal cells They would last until I was 135 years old. Then I wouldn't have enough to maintain what it's supposed to do. Our cells die off faster, and they do not replicate after birth. The goal is to try to continue with healthy cells as long as possible to avoid surgery. That's what they're trying to do. And actually, there are a couple of intermediate steps after partial corneal transplant where they simply scrape away the diseased cells, actually they tear it off. It's a tiny layer of one cell thick. Then they wait for the cells to, from the periphery, which are healthy, to propagate into the center. Now, that only works for some percentage of people, and they're very strict about who they try this on. Okay, and it's called a big long name. Yeah. Okay. DWEK,
0: anyway. I get it. And then I see DWEK without. I think okay. is another acronym.
1: It's, it's stripping without a donor tissue being inserted. That's one. There's clinical trials going on. There's probably forty or fifty around the world of centers that are working on this. There's one in particular that has the highest record of anybody. And he's one of the high performers with partial transplants. It turns out people who excel, excel all the time. They they continue to amaze me. The second one is from a company called Trefoil or Treffle. And it's something called a fibroblast growth factor that's naturally occurring in the cornea. And it aids in healing the cornea when there's trauma or incisions. They've re-engineered FGF1 to call it EFGF1. They put it in a solution and they're running trials now where they give a series of four injections into the eye over a period of four weeks. It causes the cells to replicate. The problem with replication normally would be that the cells don't stop and they jumble up on top of one another, and the, that layer doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Then it defeats its purpose. Well, apparently they have a stopper in there that recognizes when it looks like a beehive, nice row of hexagonal cells all interlocked. So, like thing.
0: honeycomb, like a level of honeycomb. honeycomb. Mm-hmm. The
1: word I was reaching for.
0: <laughs> beehive, right. exactly.
1: There actually are clinical trials now. We're encouraging our members to work with both companies that are doing this. The issue is that these are in clinical trials. They are either triple or quadruple blind. And that means that at least a portion of the people are going to get a placebo, which has no effect. In the Treffel case, they are trying three different strengths of uh, their product plus a, a placebo. So one-fourth are going to get a placebo. Mm-hmm. And we don't know who they are.
0: Well, that's better than half. I mean, a lot of them are done that way, you know? So
1: Yeah. Well, the COA is testing with DSO or DWAC, and they're using something called K321, which is a ROCK inhibitor. Mm-hmm. And it does good things when it's needed. Their ROCK inhibitor tends to encourage, I'll call it, encourage the cells to move from the periphery into the center. So when the cells are stripped, they are hoping that it improves that migration. Mm -hmm. However, COVID (laughs) has caused a big problem. In international shipping, you're not allowed to ship into the U.S., number one. So they can't get that. It hasn't been approved officially for safety in the U.S. That's why they're doing trials. Okay, and we're encouraging people to go with that, but the big stopper is again that there's placebo. Some people don't want to try.
0: Understandably, they want treatment that's going to help them,
1: right? Yeah, the, the nature. It's interesting to watch the nature of the group change. Our group will really started out, and <laughs> we try anything, <laughs> okay, because there was nothing much out there. Anything, almost anything, could be better. We pushed on this stuff. It's difficult to get people to understand how, how delicate these operations are, how delicate manipulating the cells, you know, the genetics are, and that they are so privileged to be able to get in on this stuff. Right.
0: So let's talk about that for a moment. About um, 2% of people over 40 will eventually be diagnosed with uh, corneal dystrophy. Is that statistic still correct?
1: It depends on who you, whose research you look at. Hmm. I've seen everything from 2% to 5%. The other thing is of people over 40. Right, of people over do. 40. But fairly recent genetic analysis has... For instance, Hook's dystrophy was considered to be maybe two variations, the normal late onset one, which goes up about age 50 and later, an early one. Well, it turns out that they found eight loci, genetic loci, and they all seem to have different propagation levels and initiation dates, you know, ages and stuff. It's much more diverse that way.
0: I think I remember seeing a story of a woman in her 20s that uh, was diagnosed with a corneal dystrophy and just the shock that came with it because nobody had ever spoken to her about this type of a disease. And it isn't something that's routinely even talked about at a medical office. Like when I went in for genetic testing myself when I was pregnant as a what they called geriatric mom being in my late 30s at the time. The geneticist I spoke with wasn't even familiar with Fuchs dystrophy. So it's, um, I think, something that sits in the, it's the rare disease field. People who are in ophthalmology, they, they understand it, or they're gaining a better understanding with time. But 2% of a population over 40 sounds like a rather large number to me, even if it is a rare disease.
1: But you see, it's rare enough so that although every ophthalmologist learns about it, while he's in school prior to being a resident, they rarely ever see a case of it. And when they see a case, they don't know anything about it.
0: And they don't know what to do or what to recommend.
1: Right. They they just haven't followed it. And very often what I hear is that they're not sure whether it's the cornea that's causing the issue or if it's a cataract.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if you can't see through the cornea, you can't see a cataract. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. and the cornea clouds. There are a number of 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 markers for it. So, I just think that they don't know what to do about it.
0: Well, I mean, you manage the Fuchs Friends group in particular to help patients navigate all of these challenges that they encounter when they get a diagnosis. I mean, I've seen some beautiful testimonials on your site and in social media, so I wondered if you could tell a story, one that perhaps stands out to you, of an individual that Fuchs Friends and your foundation has been able to help and support.
1: The story is a bit unusual. You talked about a 20-year-old. It's about three years ago. I got an email from the grandmother of a five-day-old infant, my newly-born grandson, five days old, has been diagnosed with corneal dystrophy. That rang an alarm bell right away because when an infant is born, if it cannot see, it may never generate the pathways necessary to be able to see later. The infant has to see at birth or mm-hmm. very close to birth. So there's a, you know, a clock ticking on this thing. And this was a Saturday afternoon. I saw this. I emailed her, got some more information, but I didn't get the parents' name. She didn't give it to me. And I emailed a surgeon in the Midwest. I can't use names on this. They never gave permission. No, I I understand. They're very private people. Right, of course. I emailed the surgeon. He's been cooperative, helped me find people in Israel uh, or surgeons in Israel and all over the world. And... I figured I'd get an answer on Monday. About 40 minutes later, I got an email from the local university that was putting a team together to handle this baby. Then I got an email from the surgeon himself, and he said he was going to sit in on it too. And all they needed was the parents' permission. Well, it took me over a day to get the grandmother. I didn't have a phone number. She didn't give it to me. So I was working by email over a day to get her to contact the contact information for the mother. And I got immediate permission. Within a week, the child had a partial corneal transplant successfully. So I kept in touch and he had another one at about three months, I think. And I checked at one year with mom. He had also been diagnosed with glaucoma they put a shunt in it controlled the intraocular pressure he was doing fine at two years she said oh i found out what the terrible twos mean (laughs) it's very normal just bumbling around
0: right so now the child has vision and they otherwise would have been blind now
1: the child is a normal child yeah with two corneal transplants you know Mm -hmm. and a shunt to shut off excess pressure in one eye. Kids are amazingly adaptable.
0: Yeah. Well, they can definitely pick themselves up and keep running down the street, can't they?
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Most of the people that I have to deal with personally over the phone are freaked out. They lived all their life healthy. They cannot understand how they got this disease. They claim that nobody in the family ever had it. Well, as part of the previous generation, I can tell you that the generation prior to us, uh, they didn't talk about what was not well in their in their life. So you didn't find out. Or it was aging. They thought it was just getting old eyes. Yeah, you know? they got
0: old eyes. They couldn't see as well. They maybe had cataracts that and um, in- Cataracts
1: impeded- were virtually inoperable on the generation prior to mine
0: yeah it was just accepted as a fact of life like you an, a dog got really old they got cataracts and couldn't see anymore you know maybe that's it you know same thing with human right
1: my mom had cataract surgery on one eye she was in the hospital in a semi-private room in bed for a week
0: well different different world now right you're like outpatient surgery right
1: Partial corneal transplants and full corneal transplants are outpatient surgery. And you go home in your car and you lay down, okay, and then you're up and down. That's the story that really sticks with me. We've had three or four cases with an infant, and we've had absolutely no trouble getting a specialist
0: Yeah. I mean, I imagine they want to do it out of this kind of do-gooder center in their hearts, you know, and it's something they could also put in their accolades book, right? People become medical doctors for a reason typically, and they they want to help the young for sure.
1: But many of them cannot suffer fools. (laughs) They won't take silly questions, okay? Mm -hmm. They will help as much as they can. Just don't waste their time, okay, because it's precious. The top doctors, top Specialists all publish, do research, they take tons and tons of data points for every surgery that they do. they compare them, they look to see what works and what doesn't, and they constantly are working on improving the state of the art yeah okay i have i just I'm amazed by these people i I tease them and call them data freaks, and they are. Because that's what makes them better. They can see what they've done.
0: I wonder if in running this particular not-for-profit, I mean, over the years, you've touched the lives of so many people and helped support them with Fuchs' friends, as well as through the Corneal Dystrophy Foundation. If you were to kind of give our audience a perspective on how you measured success as time went on, and perhaps how you measure that today... I think that would be helpful for any budding potential not-for-profit developers out there as well.
1: Success to me in this case means that no matter what I do and no matter how much help I get, I have to help even more people and work harder because more come in. Success is people recognizing that you can help them and coming to you to do it, to get that help. The other thing is the recognition uh, not, not obvious recognition, but the attitude of the specialists, the top guns, that they have respect for what we're doing and they appreciate it and they tell us that, okay, and they tell the public that. More and more what we're seeing is that they recommend that people join our group, folks, friends. One of the reasons for starting the Corneal Dystrophy Foundation was to expand the scope to cover all corneal dystrophies because there's over 20 of them. Fuchs Friends is also open to anybody with any corneal dystrophy. Uh, we don't have members for everyone, but we'll welcome people with them. There's a lot of commonality. The surgeons are recommending that... The patients join Fuchs Friends.
0: Now, how people find Fuchs Friends? They can just go to the Corneal Dystrophy Foundation's website, and that's cornealdystrophyfoundation.org.
1: We have a navigation bar across the top, and on there it says support groups, and you can click on that and find out how to join.
0: There's a really simple pathway. So that website just again is cornealdystrophyfoundation.org, all spelled out. And if you type a search into Google, it comes up first because, again, they've been around for quite some time now and are a resource specifically for patients who have corneal dystrophies. So you can find Fuchs' friends that way. And there's a variety of um, you know groups on Facebook sometimes that even mention it or point to it. I've seen that myself. You can also connect with the Corneal Dystrophy Foundation through social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, et cetera. I know, Bob, your goal is to be accessible to as many people who might be afflicted with this as possible around the globe. Recently, you were talking about an initiative producing potentially even an app or another technological piece that you could help support other communities with. Um, do you have an update for that or is that still a little too new?
1: What the goal would be? is to have a generalized app or web platform that can work for any rare disease, patterned after what we do, where Fuchs Friends is actually a repository of knowledge. That was the goal. People can talk to each other by phone or by email, and they benefit from that, but nobody else does. So the goal was to store that information. So we kind of discourage one-on-one kind of conversations, unless they're through the platform. This allows a body of knowledge to be accumulated. I hope to get into big data one of these days.
0: (laughs) Step-by-step, right? Every day is a new day.
1: We've got over 200,000 conversations recorded, uh, email conversations. Anyway, this is a generalized platform. The germ for it came from uh, a woman in India who has two daughters, who uh, one is in the computer business, in the software, and the other one is an architect. She couldn't find a surgeon. and She joined Fook's friends, or the daughters joined for her. They've developed a big respect for what we're doing. So the one works for a firm in India that does apps and things. What we're doing currently is um, running a member's survey they gave us a lot of questions that they wanted answered in text form. I converted it to a survey. I built a process where every group of 150 people that I survey spreads across the entire 20 years. I've been getting a lot of answers, not a, not as many as I want, but a lot of answers that will be used as part of a guide to design a new system.
0: Yeah, well, that's incredible. I applaud that effort. I hope it goes smoothly and that you have an application the next time we're able to have you on. Thank you. Before we end the show, I'd love you to just perhaps give a few words of wisdom, any takeaway or soundbite that you'd like to leave the audience with.
1: Well, I'd like to focus it on your vision. Don't assume that a change in your vision is just normal aging. Never do that. Go to an expert and find out what the problem is why it changed, okay? To modify that a little bit, an optometrist specializes in measuring your eyes. That really is their primary function. They do other tests as a way to refer you to an ophthalmologist who's an MD, first has to become an MD and resident in that and then subspecialty in ophthalmology. You should really have a working relationship with one ophthalmologist and use him as a spring platform for any specialist so that's really really the two things don't underestimate what happens on your vision or you might end up going over a curb when you think it's a driveway as Mm. i did Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was my wake-up call
0: (laughs) well don't hit any mailboxes right (laughs) <laughs> I want to thank you, Bob, for coming on the show. Now, um, reminding the listeners here, you go to cornealdistropyfoundation.org. There you can research some more for yourself. You can join Fook's friends. You can even choose to donate. There are options to do so for one time or revolving donations. It's a completely member-supported, really feel. This isn't backed by any big company. So let me go ahead and thank you all for joining us. Bob, stick around for just a moment. Today, we invited you to care more about the rare genetic diseases in particular. So I have a question for you. What rare diseases affect you or those that you love? What support system is available for them? You can donate resources or you can always volunteer, giving your skills and your time. Action doesn't have to be or feel like a herculean effort. Your action could even be just sharing this podcast with people in your community or who might be afflicted with a rare disease. To find suggestions, you can visit caremorebebetter.com. There you'll find an action page dedicated to causes and companies we encourage you to support. And I invite all of you to join the conversation and be a part of this community. You can follow us on social spaces at caremorebebetter and message us directly here or on our website. Now, remember, this podcast is not backed by any company, much like the Corneal Dystrophy Foundation. If you like what we're doing and can afford it, you can support the show by donating directly on our site, caremorebebetter.com. Thank you, listeners, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we can do so much more. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social
1: good.